Well, I'm not sure if you could sort of pick up the tone there, but uh, Galatians starts in a quite different way to Paul's other letters. He's uh, introducing himself, but then there is a, an issue at hand that he is really troubled by. And uh, really, I guess what we see in these first 10 verses is that, that there's really something central going on for the Christians in this Galatian region. And really the heart of what Paul is wanting to write to them for is for them to have clarity on what it means to be a Christian. I want about you, uh, when you tell someone that you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus or, or someone hears that you go to church or a Christian, do your expectations of what that means to you match up with others? Uh, I was riding with some guys this morning and... Um, you know, they're like, oh, so what time do you have to get to church? I'm like, oh, church starts at 10. I'm like, oh, you got to put on your, your Sunday best. And I'm like, oh, like, it's not like I've, I've put on a shirt and tie. Like their perceptions of what Christianity is in church were very different to mine. And so what we're going to be seeing today is actually at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is responding to what God has done. And now this idea of having a central idea of what Christianity is or what someone's faith is, is probably something that in our highly individualised society isn't really that welcomed. Uh, Everyone's happy for people to have their own beliefs, but for your beliefs to sort of impinge or to confront mine is something that people aren't really that comfortable talking about. But what we see with Paul in his letter to the Galatians is actually the centrality of your belief and the consistency of that for the church is actually key. Because once we sort of start distorting or changing things, then the very thing that God has done to bring us into relationship is compromised. And so today we're going to be thinking about what is genuine Christianity? And I think when we sort of see people living out their convictions, there's something admirable about that. But there's also probably something a little bit daunting when uh, people hear of uh, religious convictions, uh, people who are radical about their faith. And so I guess at that point, it's really about what you believe in, whether you believe in something that is good, that your sincere convictions of it is actually something that brings life rather than taking it. So what we're going to see today is that what we actually believe matters. And so the letter of Galatians is really a battle of beliefs. It wasn't something abstract. It was something deeply personal. It wasn't just a local issue, but something that is really of global significance. And so the letter to the Galatians is written in time and place. And it's written by this guy, Paul, whose actual belief about Jesus had changed in his adult life. He'd moved from a sceptic to a believer And that transformed the way that he viewed his life and the way he went about that. Um, We're going to see a little bit more about that uh, next week as Paul shares a little bit of his testimony. But I want you to sort of have a look at Acts chapter 13 to sort of see the kind of life that Paul was involved in. Now, we're not going to read it at length, but I'm just sort of going to skim through uh, some of Paul's missionary journey. See, having been confronted with the risen Jesus... He then went on about sharing that message. And so in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, he's there at the church at Antioch uh, with some others, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, uh, Amanian, and they've been set apart. And they're there 
describing this gospel. Uh, they were sent uh, from there, they sailed to Cyprus, and then they went over to Paphos. And, and there they're sort of involved in verse 8 with, with a sorcerer, uh, who's um, someone who's opposed to them. And then we see that uh, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 10, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to go blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And so we see here that Paul is involved in very powerful ministry. He's able to not only preach the word, but he's involved in great signs. And so from verse 13, uh, they move from there. They sail to Perga in Pamphylia. And uh, John leaves them to return to Jerusalem. And then in uh, verse 14, from Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. And they entered into the synagogue and they sat down. And uh, after the readings from the law were written, uh, were read, uh, Paul gets up and, and gives a massive sermon. And then down to verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue... The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And then in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And then, verse 50, But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing woman of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Uh, going on to chapter 14, they go to uh, Derby, And uh, again, there's... Um, uh, speaking boldly in verse 3, able to perform signs and wonders. But uh, verse 5, there was a plot afoot many of the, among the, the Gentiles and the Jews with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But uh, Paul finds out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. And they continue to preach the gospel. And so we see through that that as Paul is moving, as the opposition is increasing... He's being challenged as to whether the thing that he's pursuing is actually worth prioritising, worth risking his life for. Uh, we see down in verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then uh, in chapter 15, uh, there's a return to Jerusalem uh, where there's uh, a big um, uh, discussion and council that happens within the church to work out uh, what does following Jesus mean for those of Jewish background and those of Gentile background in terms of uh, the way that they act and the way that they relate to one another. And, and so basically, I'm just sort of giving you this, this context that over about a 15-year period, Paul's been travelling around telling people about the risen Jesus. He'd moved from a sceptic to a proclaimer. When he'd encountered the risen Jesus, he realised that this kingdom that Jesus was Lord of was something that was game-changing. And so having personally travelled through this area, the Galatian region, Paul is now writing to a group of people that he's got some history with. 
And now Galatia isn't a city, it's sort of a region. Uh, it's a little bit like, say, Victoria. Uh, there's various places within it, but you sort of re- refer to Victorians as where they live in Ballarat or South Yarra as Victorians. Uh, there's sort of something unified about um, that region. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians. There's some debate over to whether it's the north or the south. I think it's most likely a southern area of Galatia. And what we're going to see in this letter is that Paul is convinced that there are right and wrong beliefs. You see, this kind of personal change that he has experienced is testimony for him that there is a genuine message, that there is a truth about Jesus that is actually a message that frees people. And it's a message for all people. And so what we're going to see through the book of Galatians is that this news of Jesus frees people from fleshly desires. frees us from the ways of the world. It frees us from the power of evil. It frees us from the insecurities that we might have about whether we're right with God. It can free us from the guilt over our past failings. And it can free us from this enslavement that we often experience of wanting to please others or compete with them for our own status. And what we see in our first 10 verses of the book of Galatians is Paul's conviction that we are freed by the gospel. So the question is, what does gospel mean? Well, gospel literally means good news. You know, we, we do it all the time. Did you hear about so-and-so? They just had a, had a baby. Did you see the game last night? It was a great result. Uh, did you see that, you know, our niece has got accepted into uni? It's a declaration of something. It's an announcement that something has happened. So the gospel isn't an invitation to do something. It's not a list of rules. It's not a set of virtues to aspire to. All these things flow from the gospel. But the gospel, in its essence, is a declaration of a result. The gospel is literally news. And Paul is saying there is news that changes everything. He was a personal example about how this changed his whole outlook and life and understanding of God and his purpose in this world. Paul's life had been turned on its head when he had clarity about the news of the risen Jesus. And so the change for him is that he's now willing to travel anywhere. He's able to endure anything so that anyone can hear this news too. And because it's news that changes everything... This gospel actually challenges everyone. The gospel, we've got to remember, is always a pronouncement. Most commonly in the ancient world, it was the pronouncement of a result, probably a military result. A bit like in our day when there's been an election and we sort of wait for someone to call the result. The gospel, a gospel, is an announcement. It's something that is definitive. Who has won or who hasn't is news that actually challenges. It it raises up the winners and it condemns the losers. And so victory always means that there is a new leader, a ruler who's now in charge. And so this gospel that Paul is bringing attention to is the news that a risen king, Jesus has conquered death, and this challenges everything and everyone. And so, like any news that's personally challenging, uh, people are going to want to contest its validity. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians to try and reinforce what this message is 
Because increasingly, on the ground, for Christians in Galatia, it's being contested. Some other teachers are questioning the message that Paul has previously brought. And so Paul begins by defending the authority that he has to bring this truth. And we see in the first few verses that he's adamant that he's a messenger from God, not from man. And so the contest that seems to be engulfing the church is about how you should respond to the news that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's not a contest of the facts about whether Jesus did rise. Paul is writing to people who accepted that Jesus is Lord. They've been compelled by the news that this man rose from dead and he is the Messiah, the chosen king. But what seems to be contested is how you should respond to that message. How should they live now in light of this great news? And so the major issue that seemed to be at hand was whether followers of Jesus should be circumcised and thus conform to the Jewish community, both as a means of honouring that tradition and probably more likely so that they receive the social protection that the Jewish community had in the Roman Empire. But Paul is adamant that adding anything, adding any requirement, is actually a distortion of the very message that he has declared. The news of what Jesus has done is central and liberating. And so Paul is wanting to deal with these disputes firsthand. And so the genuineness of what is being shared needs to be defended. And so this declaration is something that is concrete. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not just sort of Paul's vibes. The the gospel isn't some amorphous thing that anything can fall into and any response can be appropriate for. No, the gospel is news of what God has done. Have a look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul is writing to the Galatians because his rivals are delivering a different message. It's a perversion, literally a distortion. And like any counterfeit product, it looks similar, but it's different. But unlike most counterfeit products that are actually cheaper than the genuine article, whose appeal is their accessibility, this distorted message of Jesus seems to be asking more of people. It seems that the message is that faith isn't enough. You need these outward signs. So what would be the appeal for these false teachers' message if it's actually asking more? Well, despite having um, a greater response, it probably seems to be a message that lowered the risk for following Jesus in these cities. You see, if you look like a Jew and you participate as the Jewish community does, then you're really seen as just a small faction within a wider group of people. The Roman Empire won't really be that offended by you. The Jewish community will be happy that you're not ruffling too many feathers. It seems that this message, what really resonated, was that it would reduce persecution. You wouldn't look that different 
And so Paul says that this message is a perversion. It's no good news at all. Adding anything to the news that Jesus has risen from death and that's changed everything detracts from the very heart of it. And the deadliness of receiving this message is seen in Paul's response. He is astonished at how they've responded to this counterfeit message. It's this shock, this amazement about how quickly they've abandoned the very message that he previously brought them and how they'd accepted this distortion. And the deadliness of their actions is seen in the distress that Paul says. It's a destructive nature to receive this distorted message. Chapter 1, verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You see, this distortion to the truth is destructive, both for those who are receiving it and they're thrown into confusion, but even more for those who are sharing it. To be under God's curse is to be an abomination. And it's how they use in the Old Testament about the destruction of false idols, shrines to other religions. Those who are distorting this message about Jesus are committing a serious matter. This isn't just sort of a neutral debate where you can have varying opinions. Paul is adamant that the deadliness of distorting the truth of the message has major consequences. And Paul here in verse 8 is saying that the message supersedes any one individual. He himself isn't exempt. If he distorts or tries to alter the message, then he is to be also under the curse. Even if an angelic being would come and try and bring some other perversion or alteration to this message, Paul says they should be accursed. So if the gospel is news, and and the gospel is so important, what actually is the gospel? What is the genuine article? How might we see the, the counterfeits and distortions that turn up in our day? Well, the fullness of the news about God's work is really captured at depth through the whole Bible. That's why week in, week out, we're working our way through all parts of God's word. God's revelation about who he is and what his purposes are. How he is transforming this world and the hope that he offers. So there's a real depth that we can just pursue our life understanding and seeing and reveling in. But the gospel is also succinct and clear. And so we see in these first ten verses some aspects of the gospel that Paul articulates. We see that it's news of God giving himself. One who's given himself for, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. A key aspect of this news, this life-changing good news, is that God has given himself He's given up his own security and preference for a task at hand. And the task is a rescue mission. A rescue that universal humanity needs. 
It's both personal from sin, but also to the wider enslavement of the present age. And so God gives himself for the very mess that we ourselves have made. It's like a parent who pays to repair the car that their kid crashes. It's costly. It's giving of themselves and it's restorative. The grace of God is that he gives at a cost to self for a problem that he didn't really make and actions he didn't commit. He gave himself for our sin. Now, we, we might want to sort of jump to our defence at that point and say, well, my sin isn't that bad, or well, I didn't ask God to save me anyway. Or perhaps we want to sit in the prosecutor's chair and say, well, God made sin possible in the first place. It's not really my fault. But we see here that God gave himself for our actions that we have full agency over. And he's offering a rescue because we see there in verse 4, this present age is evil. There are spiritual environmental factors that surround us that we don't have responsibility of and are a real danger to us. The, The... evilness of the present age doesn't excuse our sinful response, but it certainly is conducive to us not trusting in God. And so it's just like a child who grows up in a greedy family or amongst fraudsters or amongst abusers is commonly able to copy and embody those ways, is is presented with temptations that people in a different household can't even really fathom. We who live in this present age that is so captured by evil, so readily respond in ways that don't bring glory to God and are categorised as sin. And so the good news is that God has given himself to rescue us from the very mess that we've made. And the hope that we have is verse 1, that God is the one who raised Jesus to life. You see, this news is a declaration of a a new beginning. Uh, Like streaming services brought the end of DVDs and video stores, the news that someone has defeated death is life-altering. It changes everything. And so it also raises new questions. If God has raised Jesus from death to life, why did that happen? What does it mean? Is it even really possible? And how can I obtain what Jesus is offering? These are various questions that sort of get touched upon throughout the rest of the letter. But the opening that Paul gives is this conviction that the news of what God has done is liberating. It frees people. It's a message that says we are helpless in our sin and in the mess of this corrupted world. And the news is is that rescue is available because God has given himself up. And so this news is news that brings assurance. Assurance not in our own efforts, but in what has been done. Remember, it's a declaration of a victory. There is now a new king king who has risen from death to life and that establishes new hope it actually changes everything it means that there's a whole new way of possibilities there's a whole new hope there's the possibility of being freed from the evils of our present age 
There's a power to actually deal with our sin. And so this gospel is good because it's genuine. It's not to be altered or distorted. It's perfect and complete. It doesn't need any additions. It doesn't need any kind of extra response from us to increase its validity. The good news of what God has done changes everything. And so as we seek to navigate life, we need to think, well, how central is it to my life, this declaration, this message that there is a new king, that there is a new order? How clear are we as that, as our guiding principle, when we hear other mantras, life's short, you only live once. You've got to make the most of each breath. These are the statements and mantras of our present age. Look after number one. The gospel is that God has offered hope for humanity. That he's dealt with our overriding problem and that he is offering a restored relationship. The gospel is a message that is confronting. That we can't sort of ignore the impact it has on us. It says that we are accountable to a maker, but it also offers great comfort. You see, the the announcement of what God has done in Jesus doesn't change when we've had a bad day. It doesn't change when we've failed in a significant aspect of our life. It is news that we are invited to return to and to delight in. But just like the Galatians, there are going to be pressures for us to sort of dilute this message, to want to add some other things to it. To encourage others to sort of think, well, if you're a real Christian, it looks like this kind of involvement or this kind of interaction. The good news is of what God has done. And it's the very thing that we are invited to anchor our life on and to be freed by. And the thing about being freed from something is that you delight at the person who freed you. And when you're freed from somewhere that you've put yourself in, you are freed by someone who cares about you and has a new purpose for you. And so as we think over the next couple of months of this book of Galatians, we're going to think about what it looks like to live as freed people. People whom are loved and are pursued and have a hope that is not bound in our own effort, but that is founded in what God has done. So friends, let's uh, embark on this journey together and to try and think of what it looks like as people who live with a profound clarity on the goodness and the genuineness of what God has done. Let's be a people who are thinking about the implications of that for all of our decisions about how we attend to our work, about how we spend our time, about the way that we relate to one another, about how we take a conversation in our household or in the school or in our workplace. 
Let's be thinking about what does this news mean for the way that I spend my money, the way that I uh, relate to those in my life. And let's hold securely to the great confidence that is found in what God has done in Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to affirm through song that there is no other name. That Jesus is Lord and that that changes everything. Let's pray. Loving Father, we want to thank you so much that you are the God who gives himself, that you offer rescue. Father, perhaps we become overly familiar with this claim of Jesus rising from death, that perhaps we don't respond in a way that the news of that warrants. Father, forgive us for wanting to put you in a little box and get on living our own life. Father, grow in us just a real clarity about who you are and what you've done and how that just transforms everything about this world, about our lives, and about the way that we participate in your great plan. Father, we thank you that this monumental news is good that it offers hope for us as we're confronted with our failings, as we're aware of our limitations, as our grappling with this corrupt and broken and distorted world can be overwhelming. We thank you that in the risen one, that there is hope in the midst of despair. Father, grow us in clarity 